And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to a triumphant edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today is a man who, just like Christian Pulisic, always goes top bins when he's taking his penalties against Mexico. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> Hello, Joe. Oh, Taylor, if only that were true. I did at one point. You were there for this, but I don't know if you were watching. I did score a penalty on Bobby Warshaw after we'd finished a pick did up you? game one time. Uh, it was not top right. It was bottom left, super low. Mm-hmm. I just counted on Bobby not being like the best goalkeeper. And uh, it all worked out for me. <laughs> so you're saying yours is as impressive as what Pulisic did to Memo Ochoa? <laughs> More impressive. Is that what I'm hearing? Kid ourselves. More impressive. <laughs> uh, we are going to talk about Christian Pulisic's game-winning penalty that we weren't sure it would be game-winning uh, a couple minutes later, but it did end up being the case. The U.S. winning the inaugural CONCACAF uh, Nations League 3-2 in extra time over Mexico. And as we said in the hot, uh, Quick Take Hot Take we put out last night, uh, a dramatic game from start to finish, literally almost literally from start with uh, the U.S. conceding <laughs> so early. Uh, Joe, we, we did our quick take hot take. We had our initial impressions. We talked about some things we were going to pay attention to. We talked about some individual performances. Roughly, broadly speaking, how different are you feeling after a rewatch, after some time, some cooling off? I'm assuming you're less emotional, uh, although I'm not going to lie. Watching Pe- Pulisic hit that penalty made me pretty emotional again. <laughs> but overall, are you feeling... About where you were last night, or have things changed? I think, I think, and in, in this is natural, I think I'm a little less excited. Just because last hmm. night the game was so insane. I think I used the word bonkers about eight times yesterday as we recorded. <laughs> but it was. It's this just downright crazy game of soccer. One of the best games I've ever watched of any two teams playing. It's just downright unreal. 
And so coming off of that and watching it and watching the dramatic finish with Ethan Horvath saving that penalty after I was sure that, that Gordado was going to step up and tie the game and we were going to get more mm-hmm. penalties and the game was going to take even longer, I sort of settled down after sleeping on it and rewatching again this morning. I came back to reality slightly. Still a great win, still an awesome game, and a good performance in a lot of different facets from the U.S., but I, I don't think they were the better team yesterday. Mexico was very mm-hmm. adamant about that in the in the post-match press conferences, <laughs> and I, I don't think they're entirely wrong. After going back through it and combing through this game, Mexico did a lot of things better than the U.S., and a lot of things that could have led them to win this game. That said, man, I have a greater appreciation for... The U.S.'s work on set pieces after rewatching and digging into how they scored those goals. There are some really well-designed de- set pieces. I have an appreciation for some of the defensive adjustments that Berhalter made from, from Switzerland and from Honduras to this game that didn't necessarily work out entirely, but there's some creative ideas there. So I-, I guess I'm just more mixed on this game, and that's a natural thing, I think. Well, let's talk about that approach from the United States then and from Greg Berhalter and some of the changes he did make, because I would say for the first 20 minutes on the rewatch, I was surprised by how good the U.S. looked defensively. And I think they made Mexico change things up. Mexico definitely adjusted their approach uh, earlier than the U.S. did, and that did allow them to get more dominance in the game, especially in the latter stages of the first half. But Joe, for you, when you saw the lineup, what were you expecting, uh, especially from what we saw against Switzerland with some of the changes that we did see? Were you thinking it would be a back three? Because that's about where I was. It did not end up being a back three at all, but I thought for sure that's what we were getting in this one. Yeah, so did I, right? You see Tim Ream, John Brooks, and Mark McKenzie, three center backs in this roster, in this starting Mm -hmm. lineup, and I thought immediately, okay, this is a 3-4-3, right? You got Weston McKennie, Kellen Acosta as the double pivot. You have the front three of Sargent, Pulisic, and Reyna, and then you have Destin Yedlin to play as the wingbacks. And and it was like that in certain moments. It, It it was when the U.S. high-pressed, we saw that front three really play as a front three, like we did against Northern Ireland um, with, with three center backs at times and then the double pivot of Acosta and Musa it was in that game back in March. So it, it did have three at the back tendencies to it. But as soon as the U.S. dropped from their high press, which was fairly often as Mexico kind of got a stranglehold on possession in this game, as soon as the U.S. dropped, it became the 4-4-2 mid-block that we saw all throughout 2019. Right. That, that was Berhalter's thing. And at times that block was way too mushy back in 2019. And they'd, they'd absorb too much pressure. They wouldn't step out in high press. In this game, Taylor, I think we saw a combination of the two major defensive approaches that Berhalter's used. We saw the 2019 defense with that 4-4-2 mid block. And we also saw the 2020-2021 high pressing with the front three. Right. That's a change from from a front two to a front three. We saw Sergeant Pulisic and Reina press, but then we also saw Gio Reina drop back to the right sided midfield spot and Sergeant and Pulisic play as a front two. So it was this fluid, you know, morphing kind of shape that Baralter used in my mind to absorb more pressure because he knew that Tata Martino and this Mexico team were going to control the ball. And as it turns out, they did 57 percent to 43 percent in terms of possession. I'm surprised those it's that close because there were moments when I thought it was closer to like 70% Mexico, 30% USA based on how dominant Mexico were on the ball. But I also think to some extent that was the U.S. game plan is be OK with Mexico in possession. I think if you're trying to beat them in a possession based game, I think we saw from the U.S. and some of the individual errors on display last night that that maybe isn't the best idea. So instead, I think you're right. Like. It's a semantics thing because I would say at times it looked almost like a four three three, but a very lopsided four three three. But yeah, I think you're yeah. right that then it was very quickly a four four two, and I and I watching it live was kind of wondering why 
they went went that route why they were okay with Tim Bream being isolated on occasion. And I think it was actually a way to try to limit Mexico's effectiveness attacking down Mexico's right, the U.S.'s left. Because what I would see is that front three of Pulisic, Sargent, and Reyna uh, sort of all maybe sometimes pressing, but for the most part making sure that there were very few options behind them and that they were doing a good job with their spacing. And then I would see... A midfield three, like, kind of pushed over to the left-hand side for the U.S., and that was Serginho Dest, then Callan Acosta, and then Weston McKinney, with DeAndre Yedlin dropping in and being the right back for the back four. And I think the point there was to essentially let Mexico have time on the ball near their own goal. When they were within, like, 30 yards of their own goal, I think the U.S. was more than okay with that because there really weren't many passing options. They had everybody marked up. The United States did. And so Mexico, for the first 20 minutes, went long almost every single time. And the difference, I think, from as the game went on is that because they couldn't really find options to play out and they never really had the time and space to turn in the middle and then play the ball forward, it ended up being long-driven balls that occasionally caused the U.S. some discomfort. But for the most part, when you're hitting balls from 30 yards from your own goal or maybe maybe like 35 yards, you're still hitting them so long that you're making the U- you're allowing the U.S. to basically make it an aerial battle, and I backed John Brooks and Tim Ream and Mark McKenzie to win those headers. As the game went on and Mexico made some adjustments, then those balls, instead of being 30 yards from Mexico's own goal, are around midfield, and that's when you start to see those gaps open up. That's when Tim Ream is exposed a couple times, and I think Mexico made some really smart adjustments. But in that early stage, the United States caused a lot of problems and made Mexico change things up. They did. Yeah, I think that's really good analysis on Mexico being able to push forward a little bit more and get the ball closer to midfield when they had the ball closer to midfield. This is why I think the the 4-4-2 shape of the lopsided 4-3-3, Taylor, because you're right. It, it It is kind of semantics, but there are those subtle differences in, in specific moments. But as Mexico pushed forward near midfield, they used Edson Alvarez as that number six dropping between the two center backs for them. They, they had him between Moreno and Araujo in their back line, just like they did against Costa Rica in the, in the semifinal. But in this game, because of how the U.S. defended, they, they used that front two of Sargent and Christian Pulisic. Because of that front two, as soon as Alvarez dropped in between the center backs, Mexico immediately had a 3v2 advantage in the back. So they, they could just have Alvarez drop in and then play the ball left. It ended up being mostly Moreno, I think, who was the distributor as a left-sided center back. But he could just clip balls over the top to the wingers, to Tecatito, to Irving Lozano, to Antuna. And, and he had plenty of time on the ball because the U.S. couldn't figure out how to use their front two to step over and control three oh, Mexican players, right? Right. I, I mean, I, I can, I can, I can jump in here and help please. out because this is where that four three three four four two difference is so important. And again, it sounds like semantics, but it's it's a deliberate thing that uh, Tata Martino does that causes the U.S. problems. Because I would say in the first fifteen minutes. Uh, Gio Reyna routinely joins that, that that front two, so you have a front three when Alvarez drops in, and now it's 3v3. When Alvarez then would try to step out, and that was the initial solution for Mexico, Josh Sargent just tracked him, Josh Sargent was a little bit deeper, Pulisic and Reyna were ahead of him, and again, you're marked up across the board, Mexico have to go long. Where they change things up is that then Gallardo, the left wing back for Mexico, instead of pushing high, and I think that was their initial game plan, 
He almost at certain points becomes a left center back for Mexico. Alvarez steps into midfield as that number six. And what that means for Gio Reyna is he can't comfortably sit on Moreno anymore because he has this left wing back. He gets the ball kind of chipped over him twice in quick succession and Mexico are able to attack. So Reyna has to drop a little bit deeper to cut off that outlet pass to Gallardo. But because he does that, to your point, now Moreno has time and space and now he has time and space closer to midfield field and can then start banging those balls in. But it's an aggressive, it's not an aggressive change, but it's a very smart adjustment from what Mexico were doing. It's just, hey, be 10 yards deeper when we're building out. But that 10 yards makes all the difference in terms of pulling the U.S. uh, further wide, opening up space through the middle and especially opening up space in behind. Yeah, Taylor, that's that's such good analysis because there are clips in the first half that that you can see Gio Reyna not knowing where to go, not yep. being able to step high to support Josh Sargent because it was Sargent on the right side of the of the front two, quote unquote, with with Reyna mm-hmm. as that flex player on the right. It was Pulisic on the left, Sargent shaded to the right, and then Gio Reyna kind of in no man's land at times because he didn't have the freedom to step yeah. forward, or at least the U.S. couldn't figure out on the fly how to adapt and how to step to cut off all of these options. And Taylor, this sequence, this, this exact 3v2 that maybe the U.S. should have had it be a 3v3, this exact sequence leads to that VAR corner kick goal that's that's called off. It's Moreno on the left side of that temporary back three after Alvarez has dropped in. He clips a ball forward to Hector Herrera, who's made a run out of midfield in the 23rd minute. And then uh, Mexico win a corner after Herrera, I think, plays it wide to Chucky Lozano, and, and the ball goes out for a corner kick after Yedlin clears it. Then it's Herrera who takes that corner short. He finds Moreno. Uh, it's not Herrera who takes the corner short, but he, he plays the ball into Moreno, and he heads it home, and then Vieira calls off the goal. But you can see from, from that moment that it could have been 2 nothing Mexico inside of 25 minutes because of how expertly Tata Martino set up that Mexico team to play through the U.S.'s adjusted defensive shape. And as we said in the quick take, if that goal stands, and I would stress that it wasn't like the United States did something right there. It wasn't like they <laughs> stepped out aggressively and Moreno was caught offside. It was a very fortunate sequence. And if that ball is struck a tenth of a second sooner, I think he's onside. And I think it's 2-0 and it's a very different game. So it's a credit to the U.S. that they're able to kind of respond as quickly as they do. But we should also maybe talk about how the U.S. got into the situation they were very early on, because we do have a goal for Mexico in the second minute, I do believe it was. It's uh, McKenzie caught with the ball. Uh, Corona intercepts, drives in, smashes the ball sort of near post over Zach Steffen. No criticism for Zach Steffen from me. If anything, praise for him for trying to make a play on the ball. But more importantly, after the ball goes in, U.S. players' heads go down. They sort of start walking back to midfield. And Stefan is immediately over to Mark McKenzie to try to pick him up to kind of re-encourage him and just try to get his head back into it. Because that bad of a play that early on can ruin a player's character, can ruin a player's confidence, I should say. And I think Greg Berhalter maybe deserves a little praise for not pulling him at halftime because I thought McKenzie had a, a, a pretty poor performance. I don't think uh, DeAndre Yedlin necessarily had a strong performance either on that right-hand side and didn't really help him in some of those sequences. Uh, there are individual mistakes that lead to Mark McKenzie making an individual mistake, and I think that was a big part of the problem for the United States were individual errors. But you don't really expect that big of a mistake that early on in the game. You certainly weren't expecting, or I wasn't expecting Mexico to have the lead inside of two minutes, one minute, depending on when you're uh, tracking the ball going in. 
it really couldn't have been a better start for Mexico in this game. I remember watching this last night and just thinking, oh my goodness, this is exactly what they wanted. They got out on the front foot so quickly. The, the pursuit angle that Tecatito Corona takes to to intercept that pass from Mark McKenzie deep in the U.S.'s own half. M- McKenzie thinks that he can play that ball yeah. out to Weston McKenney because he thinks that Te- Tecatito Corona is closing down DeAndre Yedlin. And, and that's the angle that he's taking. And then at the last second, Corona shifts his movement and, and shifts over to cut out that pass to McKenney and, and intercepts it and scores. It's a brilliant piece of defensive work from Tecatito in that moment. But Taylor, for me, this this play starts way earlier for the U.S., yep. this, this mistake. Mm-hmm. And it starts with a a man by the name of Kellen Acosta losing the ball yep. higher up the field to, her, to Hector Herrera, who has just the dopest name, like the, the, the coolest nickname, Ache Ache, like HH in Spanish. That's so <laughs> sick, man. And I know he did a lot of bad stuff, like actual bad stuff yeah. in this game, uh, which I don't condone, but that is just one of the slickest nicknames out there in global soccer. Anyway, I got majorly <laughs> sidetracked there by Ache Ache. This, this all starts with Acosta losing the yep. ball and and that's the problem that the U.S. are facing right now. We saw it with Jackson Ewell back against Honduras, who was supposed to be the, the more possession-oriented number six. Acosta's playing that six role in this game to provide more defensive versatility and, and mobility. But what you gain in that ability from, from Kellen Acosta to, to contribute a little bit more defensively, you lose in moments like this. And I'm not saying Jackson Ewell would have done a better job. I don't know that anybody in the pool, maybe Tyler Adams would have done a better job here if he'd been ready to go. But you can't lose that ball. You You really do you know, put yourself in a hole when you lose that ball high up the field. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we saw the, the fine margins, like starting with that mistake from Acosta, as you mentioned, but then I think it ends up being a 50, 50 ball that John Brooks wins, but he doesn't win cleanly enough. He doesn't play it into a teammate. It's not then the U S reestablishing possession. It ends up being another 50, 50 that Gio Reyna can't quite fight for. Uh, then the ball spreads wide. Yedlin does make a play in a one V one scenario. And it's not as though he's beaten. He definitely gets beaten later on a couple different times. But in this one, he makes the play, but it's a it's a sort of unfortunate, fortunate bounce if you're a Mexico fan. And then now we have this like transition where you have to have cover. Weston McKinney comes over. DeAndre Yedlin is able to make up that play and play it back to Mark McKenzie. But at this point, it has been a little bit of a series of mistakes. And it goes to Mark McKenzie. And again, we see the fine margins that... You don't have the time. You can't just have that sort of slowness in your decision-making. If you make what you're going to do deliberate at all, you're playing against an opponent that will pick that up, spot that, make a play on the ball, and get a goal, which is exactly how that went down. So I think you're right not to just put it on McKinsey, but to mention a few other players and a few other moments in the lead-up to this one. But I thought a lot of the maybe opening 25 minutes for the United States came down to individual mistakes and individual breakdowns leading to larger problems. Yeah, I think there were a lot of those errors. It looked like the U.S. couldn't they couldn't sustain possession, oftentimes because of some of those individual mistakes. Right? They they weren't as clean on the ball as they needed to be. They struggled to play out of the back in in the moments where they chose to play out of the back because they weren't fully committed to that in this game. But they were lacking that little bit of polish. They even looked scared at times. I think to, to play out against that four four two high press from Mexico. They didn't look like they were fully capable of playing through that pressure. And it's possible that that early sequence of mistakes then ending in the McKenzie mistake, it's possible that that threw off the confidence of not just, you know, Mark McKenzie, but the entire team. And that hurt their ability to play out. But I think I think one of my major issues with the U.S. in this game is they didn't look terribly dangerous when they had the ball, be it 
you know, as a result of individual mistakes or some more systematic tactical kind of errors. I want to talk about the U.S. in possession. I also want to talk a little bit more about what they did defensively in that first half. But first, let's take a break to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. All right, Joe Lowry, we are back. I want to stick with the U.S. defensive approach just to spotlight one thing we talked about in the Quick Take Hot Take last night, which was the aggressive step from U.S. defenders. Uh, and, and I think that was a, an approach that was probably a thing they worked on in training. I think they definitely worked on intercepting uh, passes and cutting off passing lanes. That drill seems to have gone over well. But I also saw U.S. center backs aggressively pursuing Mexican attackers as they dropped into midfield to try to find some space on the ball. We talked about that last night with Tim Ream winning some challenges, John Brooks certainly winning some challenges. Uh, and I think they made it really difficult for Mexico to find any sort of calm uh, and time on the ball, especially around midfield, where I thought the U.S. kind of again, cause their own problems. And this does, to some extent, lead us to the U.S. on the ball. Is that when Mexico would be forced long, and sometimes it wasn't even forced long. Sometimes it was Ochoa with short passes on and just deciding, like, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting it long and we'll see what happens. And you would have the United States getting these uncontested headers or semi-contested headers that probably should have been won and either put all the way back down the field or ideally headed or chested down to a teammate. And on a couple different occasions, Mark McKenzie has one. Tim Ream has one. I think John Brooks has one. It might be the whole back line. Kellen Acosta does too. It's, it's a relatively uncontested header that is given straight back to Mexico or goes to another 50, 50. And those moments, like you've got Mexico doing exactly what you want. They're not building out. They're not trying to pass to the middle. They're not overloading and having quick passing triangles. They're just booting it long and they're doing so from far enough deep that they're not going to cause you problems. They're not going to hit it in behind. You're going to be able to win that header. But when you're winning the header and giving it right back to a Mexican player, you've essentially like like run the hook and ladder for them, and you're giving them the ball at midfield to now be like, all right, why don't you try it further up the field and we'll see what happens. And And those sort of mistakes, again, are what cost you. The other thing I think that costs the U.S. is is a sense of – complacency because if you are trying to limit what your opponent is doing and you're trying to react to what they're doing i think initially it can work but as mexico started to make those adjustments like we already talked about with gallardo dropping a little bit deeper with alvarez sometimes stepping out as the number six sometimes being the center back you have to start adjusting you have to start changing what you're doing and where i think the u.s also started to slip a little bit was in the midfield to spotlight kellen acosta one more time 
Then Mexico started sending those runners, especially Hector Herrera, uh, Ache Ache, from deeper. And twice, Kellen Acosta just completely does not track him. And both times, Herrera ends up getting the ball. At least one of those times, Acosta gets screamed at by DeAndre Yedlin because it ends up being a corner for Mexico. Uh, and, and I think in those moments, you could see how Mexico were growing into the game. The United States were not. That's a long rambling way, Joe, to get to, I think, a big reason why Mexico were able to grow into it is because the U.S. really struggled when they had the ball to get any sort of possession going. Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. They, they, Those headers that you point out, such a good point, Taylor. I struggled to put that into words, really, and, and to think about, and, and I guess to tie them together. But I'm now envisioning all those sequences that you're talking about with John Brooks definitely had one of those where the ball just doesn't go to anyone. And I'm not sure yeah. if that's on those defenders or if it's on the structure around them. But that's mm-hmm. all part of a larger problem in this game from the U.S. of not being able to sustain attacks and to sustain possession. Serginho Dest over dribbling at times on the left side, not always because he was just going out there trying to beat somebody or beat two somebodies, but because he didn't have options around him. And part of that for me, Taylor, in this game is actually how Greg Berhalter even approached this lineup. When your two central midfielders are Kellen Acosta and Weston McKinney, you send a signal that says, we're not really here to play with the ball. Yeah. We're here to defend, and we're going to use those two central midfielders to mark your two central midfielders, your two number eights, at least in this game, not not as much Edson Alvarez. But we're going to play a, a more defensive style. We don't have Yunus Musa, who's better on the ball, at least at progressing the ball on the dribble than, than Kellen Acosta or Weston McKinney. You don't put Sebastian Winjet in there, who's more of a connector than either one of two, either one of those two guys. You don't drop one of your more attacking players in there on any regular basis. You're rolling with those two players. And we saw the U.S. struggle to break out in transition moments and to, to win those balls and play forward like you're talking about, Taylor. We also saw them just avoid buildup at times. And, and they did play short out of the back. The first goal from Giorena, that does result from a more patient buildup from Stefan over to uh, McKenzie, over to Yedlin, then into McKenney, and then he takes that long throw down the line to Sargent, and, and it goes from there. But that was more of the exception rather than the rule in this game. The U.S. were very selective with the moments they chose to build out. Instead, usually just trying to play a ball into the forward line or, or trying to find some space between Mexico's back line and their midfield or just go over the top. It wasn't this deliberate, systematic possession style that we've seen from the United States in the past. No, it was not. And I think there were a number of different factors involved in why the U.S. struggled here. Number one, I think Christian Pulisic not being involved in the first half, only having 15 touches. Definitely a thing Mexico were intentionally doing, tracking him, making sure he didn't have time on the ball. But I also think when he would get it, uh, sometimes it was maybe trying to be a bit too much. And other times it was getting the ball, but too far away from teammates, too far away from goal to really have that much of an impact. But I think we saw in this one on a number of different moments, the United States relying on those individual one V ones to try to create. And when it's not the right time, when it's not the right night, when a player just isn't quite up for it, at least at that moment, then you're sort of seeing the offense sputter or, or, or stall out. And I think also not helping was a player that we talk about a lot, and I feel sort of harsh that we're doing it again, but I'm going to. It's Josh Sargent, that I thought once again we saw the problems in his game, that he works so hard, he worked very well defensively, he tracked back, he covered for players when they were caught out, but he also caused problems that he then had to work hard to solve because – at least four times in the first half, maybe five, a ball goes into him that he should control, and not even that he needs to then create something with it, but even if it's the basic of hold the ball up, 
just be that sort of base camp that your team can then build around, get numbers into the attack, then you can get possession. But he would try to play too quickly or too clever or or just not be ready for the ball to be delivered to him. There's one when John Brooks, I think, out of nowhere from like 10 yards inside his own half – hits a like left-footed, driven pass that maybe goes 40 yards through a number of different Mexican players to the feet of Josh Sargent, whose first touch is up and back five yards. Then he has to hustle really hard to try to do some defensive work, and I think he does end up making Mexico recycle possession and things slow down. But not having a player who can hold up, who can sort of just have that simple little pass or that that quick diagonal out wide. We saw Gio Reyna do that. We saw Timothy Weah do that. We even saw uh, uh, Pifuk, I think is what we're supposed to call him now. I can't yes, remember if it's Pifuk yeah. or Pifuk. But either way, yeah. uh, Jordi Pifuk uh, came on and did a few of those as well. Sargent, I think, again, his hold-up play, his first touch just wasn't there. And if you're the United States and you want to play this quick counter-attacking style, you can't afford to have a forward who doesn't really facilitate that. Am I being too harsh, Joe? Because I feel harsh. I don't really want to like call out Josh Sargent again, but it is another situation in which I don't know this like style suits him very well. No, I don't think you're being too harsh. I don't think you were overly harsh in that criticism. I think you're just going through why or, or another reason why the U.S. struggled to move the ball forward in this game. I think when Pifak came off the bench in the second half, I think he looked much more comfortable in the Josh Sargent role offensively. But but this is the trade-off, right? With Josh Sargent, you get all that defensive work that you need in a game like this against Mexico, but you lose out on the offensive side a little bit in terms of being able to progress the ball into the final third. You get that a little more on the offensive side with a bigger hold-up number nine like like Jordan Pifak. And so it's a, it's a trade-off, and I can understand why Berhalter went with Sargent in this lineup, knowing full well that he was setting up his team to absorb a little bit more pressure than normal. To high press, yes, but also to sit a little bit deeper. You need someone like Josh Sargent who's going to work hard to cut off the passing angles into Edson Alvarez, to cut off the passing angles into midfield. And I, I guess if you're Greg Berhalter, and it, it, it ultimately worked out, you take that trade-off of saying, we're not going to be quite as effective playing through that nine to get into the attacking half, but we are going to be a little bit harder to play through defensively. I will I will agree with you, but I will add that if Daryl DK does end up making that Gold Cup team, does start some games and does score some goals, I think that there's a conversation to be had, basically. Oh, yeah. I think that oh, yeah. that spot is is pretty wide open in my mind. I think, honestly, the right, back, the right back spot remains pretty wide open. I like some things I saw from DeAndre Yedlin. Overall, I didn't think it was enough of a lockdown defensive performance from him to say, yep, he's he's back in there as the number one right back. I think Cannon looked fine when he came on. Dest could do that still, so who knows there. But I, I guess, Sergeant, we can say good work rate, good effort, uh, if not a result. I would have loved to see him maybe get one of those goals that the United States did end up getting just to give him a little bit of confidence to remind people that he can score goals. Alas, it was not meant to be. It wasn't meant to be. Taylor, do we want to talk about the U.S. goals here? Yeah, I mean, I think that we do, because if you're the U.S. and you're not going to get that sustained possession, you're not going to have consistent ways to build attacks, then you've got to have other ways to score. And it yeah. seems like it was it was set pieces. Uh, they do almost concede their own goal off a set piece. And there have been criticisms about the U.S. the way about the way the U.S. defends set pieces. But obviously that goal is disallowed. But the way they attack set pieces, I don't have too many issues with because <laughs> with Mexico going with their that strange zone that's kind of man marking at times, but yeah. mostly zone. I thought the U.S. did a pretty simple but pretty 
smart thing, which was they just had their runners in a big clump outside of like the penalty spot between the penalty spot and the top of the 18. And if you're Mexico trying to play zone, it's the same thing we see with a false nine, that there is that in, that inclination to just cheat a little bit more, to get closer to that player, even if you're playing zone. And and the reason for that, I think, is that it makes you able to kind of be aware of what the runners are doing, but simultaneously attract, uh, attack your spot where you're supposed to be defending. But if you're in those two minds and you're giving the U.S. the momentum to get some runs going and more important would be have a number of runners make those runs, you create confusion and then you're not attacking your zone. You're also not tracking your men and you're also not aware of where the players are. And it's how Weston McKinney gets wide open twice in this one. Uh, the first one he hits off the post and then Reyna finishes well. He obviously gets the equalizer later in the game with another big header. And he has a few more in this game. I thought it was an excellent set piece performance from Weston McKinney and from the United States on the whole. And, and can I, Taylor, can I detail Mexico's defensive setup a little bit more Please. here? Because I, think I would love it. it. It's so fascinating to me how they approach this, because I'm sure it's happened before, but I've never seen a team defend corner kicks exactly like they did in this game. So I saw them defending zonally for the most part, like you're saying, Taylor. They had one man at the near post um, next to Ochoa, kind of a few yards to the side of him, either side of him. Then they had a line of four defenders across the six-yard box. Then they had two more defenders just staggered a little bit in front of that line of four. And then they had one player. For the first 50, 60, 70 minutes, it was Carlos Rodriguez, one of their number eights, man-marking John Brooks. That was the only man-to-man action that I saw from from their set-piece defense. But they had identified clearly John Brooks as the primary set-piece threat. And what was so interesting about this U.S. lineup is – he is a primary set-piece threat, but he and Weston McKinney are both huge dangers for the defensive team on corner kicks. We saw Weston McKinney, we didn't talk about this, Taylor, but Weston McKinney had a wide-open header in the semifinal against Honduras that he hit. Uh, I don't think That's he directed right. it on frame. I think it went over. But we've seen that. We've seen it for Juve in the past. We've seen it for Schalke. We've seen it for the U.S. in the past. Weston McKinney's so dangerous on corner kicks. And so if you're going to man-mark John Brooks at first, again, it was Carlos Rodriguez. Then after he came off, it was Luis Rodriguez starting you know, later in the second half. But if you're going to man-mark John Brooks, Weston McKenney's going to eat, right? And even Mark McKenzie, we saw him get a great mm-hmm. chance in the 76th minute off of a corner kick. It, 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 the U.S. just had too many players for Mexico to deal with in that zonal marking scheme. Weston McKenney picked his spots well. He used uh, John Brooks's movement to create space for him. He almost used him as a screen at one point on the first goal, I believe. And then he used Christian Pulisic as a screen a little bit on the second mm-hmm. goal in the second half. But really, he just kind of stood there. And the zonal marking scheme didn't step out to deal with him. That's one of the dangers of zonal marking. Jordan Angeli talks about this all the time on MLS Assist. You have to attack the ball. And if you don't attack the ball as a zonal defender when the ball comes in your zone... You're at risk of getting dunked on, and Mexico got dunked on a lot from corner kicks in this game. You have to attack the zones, and you have to be disciplined in your position within that zone. Because when, for the first goal, when, uh, for the first U.S. goal, I should say, when the ball comes in, uh, Gio Reyna, he's making a sort of near post run of sorts, but he, it doesn't go to him, but he's alive, he's on his toes. This is the number one thing when you're coaching young players and you have to teach them like, to be on their toes. They can't just be standing because at any moment the ball can come to them. This is a great example of that because Reyna, the ball goes past him. Some players maybe would switch off or think like, all right, well, that's it for me. I'm just going to ball watch. But he's on his toes. He's able to adjust and swing around to put that ball in the net. So it's great work from him. 
But Mexico, like, vacate that space. They leave that space for him. And again, like, not necessarily blaming zonal marking, just saying that if you're not doing it properly, you are not policing your area. No one is sort of tracking him because it's not a man marking system. And so in both ways, they kind of collapse. And that leads to an open player scoring a goal and the U.S. equalize. Yeah, and if you're not going to score and, and you're not going to look particularly dangerous in possession, mm-hmm. this is what you have to do, right? Mexico controlled yep. open play. I, I genuinely believe that. But they were so far away from controlling set pieces that the U.S. took advantage of those moments and did exactly what they need to do. Taylor, they could have scored. I mean, this is kind of XG defying here, which I guess is off-brand for me. But the opportunities were there. They had good chances from corner kicks to score more goals and put even more shots past Ochoa. Ochoa made a couple of very nice saves to keep Mark McKenzie's shot out of the back of the net, to keep another Weston McKinney shot out of the back of the net. I mean, this this set-piece dominance from the U.S. in this game, it, it saved them because they really yeah. were struggling to put together cohesive attacking chances throughout the, the 90 minutes and then even into extra time as well. And yet, for all of their struggles, Mexico is struggling to defend a set piece, period. Because yeah. even for the uh, for the second goal for the U.S., as the corner's being taken, the camera is showing Memo Ochoa screaming at his yeah. team to get somebody on the line. And I was like, is it really that bad? And then it cut to the wide angle, and there are a number of Mexican players outside of the six-yard box. I don't think there are any inside of it, except for Ochoa, who is basically exposed and has to sort of police that whole area himself while tracking what everybody else is doing. And it was pretty discombobulated for Mexico. But I guess you could say the same thing of the U.S. at times in this game. We, we've we talked about the U.S.'s equalizer. We haven't talked about the goal that necessitated that equalizer. So, Joe, for a minute, can we talk about uh, Mexico's second? Because Diego Lainez turns out pretty good. Oh, so, so good, Taylor. I watched <laughs> that. I watched the Mexico-Costa Rica game, and oh, Lainez was along with Chucky Lozano, the best player on the field. He has so much quality cutting in on his left foot. It's re- We absolutely need to talk about this goal. And I guess this is a, a weird, twisted, guilty pleasure, but it allows us to talk about Tim Ream, which I don't think we've yeah. done yet defensively, and we kind of need to. We, we kind of need to, because I, I have understood why he was in this team. I know people have been frustrated by it. I think he does bring the kind of veteran wisdom. He seems like a person who is going to become a coach and is is also like on the sidelines having conversations with Burhalter, but also we've seen him do this left center back, left back role for the United States, allows them to have a little bit more attacking freedom down the left. Today or last night, I thought it was exposed and I thought it was it was more of a problem because once Mexico did start going more direct from further up the field, Tim Ream's positioning was suspect. His pace was certainly suspect. We talked about that in the quick take hot take. But then what I think started to happen and I, I, I knew it happened on the goal. I didn't realize how far back it happens, but especially in the second half. Reem starts cheating a little bit in the way he's defending in two different ways. The first thing, I will admit that I have done this playing as a central midfielder. I've seen other (laughs) players do this. Maybe as you get a little more advanced in age or the fitness is on the way out, you you give a little bit more space to the player on the ball, not because you, you like think they're not going to do anything, but it's because if you're worried about getting beat for pace, you want to give yourself a cushion. If you're tight on that player and Joe passes the ball around me, I've then got to turn and trust my first couple steps, that first little bit of acceleration, to make up the distance and either have me win the ball outright or at the very least get 
get position to cut out Joe, the attacker, from getting on the end of it. But if you're Tim Riemann, you know you're not going to have that acceleration. You know you're not going to win that foot race. Then you want to give yourself a yard or two cushion so that when Joe tries the, to knock the ball past you, you have that yard to be able to turn and get up to speed and then make the play. But what kept happening with Tim Ream is he was giving that space, and when it was Antuna on the right, Antuna sometimes would try to go inside, but for the most part, he would feint to the left and then cut to the right, try to get to the end line and play a low ball in. Sometimes he beats Tim Ream, sometimes he doesn't. Because he kept doing the same thing, Tim Ream could kind of shepherd him and give him that gap. Once Mexico spotted this and I think started to emphasize it, I think there were much bigger problems uh, evidenced by uh, Lainez subbing on in, what, the 77th and scoring in the 78th. And in between, he takes on Tim Ream twice. I think Tim Ream in this game kind of... It was kind of like he was running or just entering an Ironman, right? Taylor, do you know Ironmans? Like, you you do the, the running and the swimming and the biking, right? So... As Antuna comes off in that in the 77th minute or the 78th minute, whatever it is, Tim Ream finishes the first leg of the Ironman. Great. Okay, I'm done <laughs> with the swimming. Or, or, or I don't know which leg's first. It doesn't matter. I'm done with the swimming. All right, I can take a breather. But you don't get to take a breather. You're into the next leg of the race. And the next leg was Diego Linus. Antuna had consistently beat him towards the end line, like you're talking about using a strong right foot. And then Diego Linus starts cutting inside with his left foot. And Tim Ream just looks like he does not know how to deal with that. Or he's unable to deal with that different threat. He struggled with Antuna. Then Linus comes in, he beats him to the end line, then cuts inside of him on that goal, and, and just looks generally dangerous on that side. And, and it looks bad for Tim Ream, right? It doesn't look like he's capable of defending at this level. But then I start to wonder, why is Tim Ream in this lineup in the first place? This, I think, is my biggest personnel question in this game. I can understand a lot of the decisions made. I can even understand, theoretically, why... Berhalter would have used Tim Ream. You think he's going to be the left center back in a back five, and then he shifts over as a as a left back in the back four. But maybe Berhalter wanted to be pressing a little bit more and use Ream as as deeper defensive cover in a more central area. But it didn't turn out that way, Taylor. It didn't turn out that way at all. And he ended up being isolated consistently on that left side with Sergio Desk getting pulled forward as Mexico kept that right back a little bit deeper. You, you talked about that happening on the left. It happened on the on the U.S.'s left side, Mexico's right side too. And Reem was consistently put in situations that did not set him up for success. And that's not his fault. That that goes deeper into how this team was set up by Greg Berhalter. I agree. Because I, I think the idea was having players that left back. Uh, and then when Mexico do look long, as long as you're forcing them to do it from deeper, you backed him, Reem, to win that header over whomever it might be. If it's Antuna, if it's Lozano, if it's Corona coming across, you expect him to be able to win that in the air and then do a good enough job in 1v1 scenarios when Mexico do have sustained possession. But you're totally right, Joe, that as Mexico change things and pull Sergio Dest out and now it is 1v1s against Ream with balls coming in from much further up the field, that is never what was supposed to happen. That was never part of the game plan, and that's where you have to adjust. And I think, like, if I'm being generous, I think I would say that it's Tata Martino who spots this, recognize it. I, if I, if I, what I hope is the case, I'm not saying it is because I have no idea, but I would not even be surprised if the briefing for Linus as he came in was take him to the end line one more time so he thinks that's what you want to do. And then next time go inside. Because as you said, the first time Linus comes on, he goes to the end line, fakes like he's going to cross, Reem bites on that one, and that's how Linus, I don't know if he megs him, but he definitely gets around him and it ends up getting cut out, I think, for a corner. 
But so the next time he gets the ball, and I took a screenshot of this, I'll have to post it. But even before he gets it, Tim Ream's positioning is bad. He is not open to the field of play at all. He is ball watching. He has his back to Linez, which he should not be doing. And he is a little bit too too inside. Linez has drifted over further outside. So Ream now has to close that gap. But I think he's trusting that the player is going to try to get to the end line. So he is very much already in position to show him that way. And it's why Landis is really able to cut across him pretty easily is because Reem is completely shaping for Landis to go to the end line, which he does not do. Then everybody else to, has to try to collapse, but nobody can get there in time. And it's an excellent finish and a great change from Tata Martino. Credit to Berhalter for changing it up pretty quickly thereafter, but that also felt like a problem that had been developing and worsening for the, I think, ensuing 20 minutes, or the previous it, 20 minutes, rather. It really had been. And some of this is a byproduct of the struggles that we talked about earlier with the U.S. not really being able to keep the ball, right? They were pinned back for not almost all, but so much of the last 20, 25 minutes of regulation in the second half, and then almost all of, of extra time, that, that extra 30 minutes the U.S. was back deep, and it was in the 4-4-2 for a little bit. And then after Weston McKinney gets that equalizer to make it 2-2, Berhalter brings on Tyler Adams and Leggett and shifts Kellen Acosta over to left back for Tim Ream, which I think was a good change. And then it was a 4-3-3. But even with that more proactive, ideally high-pressing 4-3-3, the U.S. stepped high but couldn't win the ball and then had to come back deeper and defend in their own defensive third with, at times, 10 players behind the ball. When you're taking that much heat, when you're taking that much, you know, when, when you're on the end of so many attacks over and over again and you're just pinned deep, plays like this line as goal are going to happen against a team as good as Mexico. And so that was a big problem for the U.S. And again, I think they're a little bit fortunate to come out without conceding one more goal from open play as they sit so deep and in the lighter stages of this game. Agreed. And I would uh, agree with Tata Martino, who I think said like he hopes that the Mexican press saw the progress that this, this team has made and doesn't uh, criticize them too harshly. That said, at this point, it felt like Mexico had the game won. The U.S. hadn't really built any attacks. And then they get that other set piece goal to equalize courtesy of Weston McKinney. And I think two goals from set pieces is uh, great for the United States, less so for Mexico. We'll talk about how the rest of this game played out in just a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Joe, two to two. Uh, anything else to talk about from regulation? We've talked about a few of the changes that happened. It, it seemed like there were dramatic moments at the end of regulation and into extra time, but a lot of it was kind of scrappy, fouling, some potential cards, some actual cards. Uh, did you have any uh, particular notes from this section of the game? Well, just one thing before we move into extra time that we should know. We talked about it last night. I don't think we've said it yet. Ethan Horvath comes on for Zach Steffen. Yes, uh, ten ish, five, ten ish minutes before Diego Linus gets his goal. Steffen goes down with some sort of knee injury, and it yep. it didn't look as bad as I initially feared it would be. He was he was standing and moving around, but I'm not a doctor, so I don't I don't know how bad that is. But either way, Ethan Horvath comes on, and he allows that first goal, not his fault. He allows that second goal for Mexico, the first goal for him, not his fault. And then he is the goalkeeper coming into this extra time period when everything, somehow everything still happens when everything had already happened. There's so much that goes on in this this added time. The U.S. sit deep and Mexico keeps attacking and the U.S. are a little fortunate to find that one moment to break forward and, and draw a very important penalty with the help of VAR. That was, as I said, I think Pulisic had 15 touches in the first half. Maybe he had that many in the second half, but uh, does end up with a pretty important moment. Uh, Adam Bells of Scuffed of the Scuff Podcast tweeted out that, like, basically he was anonymous until that moment. I would mostly agree with that, but he ends up sort of trying to make something happen, does end up drawing the penalty, uh, watching it again on TUDNA. I loved the commentators. Uh, my Spanish has limited... But I enjoyed from the first angle of it being like, no, no, it was it was like all you could tell it was all ball, good tackle, good tackle, all ball. And then you got the opposite angle and there was like a one Mississippi pause and then Espinal, Espinal. And it was like <laughs> and it was really interesting. You see the importance of VAR. You see the importance of the different angles, because uh, on first viewing, I thought, was it Salcedo who comes on and then concedes yes. the penalty? Yeah. yeah, I thought Salcedo absolutely pokes that ball away. I didn't even really see the contact. It just felt like, oh, there's a poke tackle, there's a bunch of bodies, Pulisic goes down. 
But on replay, I think it's the correct decision. He he gets the body. He blocks Pulisikov from continuing the run, then pokes the ball away. And even if he maybe, like, if the two things happen simultaneously, I still think there's a chance it's a penalty because you prevent that run from occurring because it's not as though he wins the ball cleanly and then has possession. It's still a potential loose ball. And if you've stopped the runner from being able to make a play then that's a foul too. But either way, I think correctly given, I think Tata Martino would certainly disagree, uh, try to have some words, puts his arms around the official to try to be friendly <laughs> and is rewarded with a red card for that. The ref was the real star of this game. Let's not kill uh, yeah. ourselves, right? The, the look, so Tata Martino puts his arm yeah. around him and I think it's also around Greg Berhalter as well or maybe it's some other assistant or someone over yeah. by the, the video review scrum because there's a whole bunch of people over there. And, and Tata Martino puts his arm around the referee and the look in the referee's eyes mm-hmm. as he turns around. It's like, what what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Why are you touching me? Even though it was very clearly not, not any sort of threatening grab or anything like that. But the referee is having none of it. Pulls out the red card, stares him down. That, that's just one of the many moments where the ref, I think, made himself the star of this show. Yeah. And from an entertainment perspective, man, it was great content. It was. It felt a little bit like the referee had a temper for a moment because <laughs> on his walk over, a different L tree uh, coach or advisor or whatever came over and touched him. And you saw that same look of like, excuse me, what do you think you're doing? And I think that was maybe the warning. You're absolutely right that he does the exact same look again when it's Martino. And I think it's it's a combination of I just told somebody on your staff to stop doing this and you've just done it again but it's also correct you're not supposed to touch the official that is supposed to be a straight red card it is only that referees are lenient at times with that one where they let players like sort of like put an arm around them or grab the hand or even if they get a little bit too close sometimes referees will let it go but I guess on that occasion I'm going to assume maybe there was some sarcastic remarks as well that put him into a mood but Martino getting the red card at that point felt like things are things are starting to turn. Things are starting to boil over a little bit. Uh, credit to Maurice Adu for pointing out that during this whole exchange, uh, Mexican players were tearing up the penalty spot and, and trying to make life as uncomfortable as possible for Christian Pulisic as he was getting ready to take the penalty uh, when it is awarded. And we do get that phenomenal point to the spot. Pulisic steps up. Joe, uh, I'm just going to let you take it from there. Pretty happy with that penalty? Oh, it's it's an unreal penalty kick. The way yeah. he hit it, I thought it was going over. Right, I thought it was Whew. it was too high because he he hits it so well, top right corner. Ochoa had no chance to get over and save that diving to his left. You would have had to. It's just not going to happen for Ochoa in that moment. The penalty kick is perfect, and I don't think I, I haven't had a chance to go back and check this, but from what I can remember, I don't think Christian Pulisic has the best penalty record in the past for club or country, and so that he takes this so confidently and scores it so well, I think is indicative. This is so narrative-based, but it is truly indicative of his status as this team's leader. They're their most talented player. He might not always be the most vocal leader, but he is. He, he knows his role in this team, and he stepped up and played that role to perfection in that moment. Yeah, and as I uh, alluded to in, t- in the introduction, uh, the quote I saw from him afterwards was basically, uh, I knew I was taking it, uh, and if I was going to take it, I was going to go down swinging. So I uh, put it top bins, uh, and that was my goal. That was the Too plan. much time in London. Uh, yeah, exactly. But I would say a, a good lesson for if you're taking a penalty, 
once you start getting into the like, well, if he goes that way, should I put it there? Should I? Like, if you're trying to game plan the whole thing out, pick a spot, hit the ball as hard as you can. <laughs> like that's, and maybe don't hit it as hard as you can because then you can't end up skying it. But I think back yourself, say I'm going out swinging, I'm hitting this ball into the corner, and that's where it's going to go, and do exactly that. And that is what Christian Pulisic did. Andre Scordato did not do that same thing when Mexico got their penalty. Joe, wh- how quickly did you realize this was going to be given? Because at first I thought, eh, that doesn't seem like much. And then as soon as the official went to VAR, anytime there's a handball shout with VAR involved, it's always going to look so much worse, so much more deliberate. And that was pretty much the case. As soon as I saw that first slow-mo replay, I was pretty confident it was going to be a penalty. As soon as I realized that the ball had hit Mark McKenzie's hand yeah. after after that that corner kick, I thought, "Oh man, this is a penalty." And I I was yeah. very confused at how long everything took with VAR. Mm. It seemed the the longer things took, the more I thought, "Well, maybe this isn't going to be a penalty, and maybe they're going to say that Mark McKenzie didn't have his hand in an outstretched position or, or whatever." But I was pretty sure from the start of this sequence that it was going to be a penalty kick, and so my my emotional state had taken such a, a ridiculous swing from Christian Pulisic scoring that penalty kick five minutes before this all goes down in the United States box. So then, then as the referee points to the spot and Gordado comes up to take it, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to penalty yep. kicks for real at this point. For sure. And then Ethan El Presidente Horvath, <laughs> or, or, or Vice President, whatever we want to go with, Ethan Horvath comes up and makes just another incredible save because he'd already made a, an excellent save, maybe another one in this game after coming on in the second half for Zach Steffen. But he continues to to be exactly what the U.S. needed in this game, and he makes an, a, just a downright filthy good save. He goes, Gordado goes left to Horvath's right. Horvath gets down, parries it wide, which is a good thing because uh, Chucky Lozano is crashing the box, I think illegally on that right side. I, I'm honestly not sure what the rule is there, but Lozano's crashing the box, and if Horvath doesn't put correct. it wide, yeah. if he doesn't put it wide, then that's going to cause problems for the U.S. But man, what a save in just another, in, in a series of ridiculous moments in this ridiculous game, Ethan Horvath makes a ridiculous play. So I have three things I want to talk about here. I will go in reverse order. I will start with that save and the aftermath of that save, because we do see on occasion... Players going over to mob the goalkeeper as the ball is still in bounds, or the goalkeeper getting up to celebrate. My favorite one remains in the shootout when the player, I think, hits the post and the ball goes straight up in the air. Keeper pops up to celebrate, and the ball comes right back down, bounces and rolls into the net, and it's given. So you never want to switch off, and Horvath is immediately on it. Most of his teammates are only once he catches the ball. And like falls over, does he then get the the praise from his teammates? But I love seeing him pop right back up. No reaction, no gloating, no self-celebration, just, hey, the ball's still alive, we got to make something happen. So I enjoyed that awareness. In terms of gamesmanship, this is where I want to praise Kellen Acosta for a moment. Did you notice him in the lead-up to the penalty? Yeah. <laughs> Doing he everything. not leave the penalty spot the like to the point where like like as Guardado is there as the referee is starting to get everything set up Acosta is still standing there and still talking to him and it wasn't it didn't seem malicious it seemed like he was trying to do that like no I'm just trying to talk man How, how's your day going like I just want to talk to you I don't understand why you're upset like he wasn't trash talking I think he was just trying to distract but it, it requires, I think, some Mexico players to come over and push him out of the way. And he, to his credit, just very wisely is like, what, what? Oh, am I in the way? Like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be. But then his teammates come over to support him, and it just keeps slowing things down. And at one point, after everybody is cleared out, 
Acosta still hasn't, and it ends up being like five players surrounding Guardado who cannot be focused. He cannot be sort of locked in in that moment because he's got all this going on. So I loved Kellen Acosta, even if I wouldn't have loved it probably going the opposite way. And the other thing, all the way back to the penalty being given, this feels like a things can be two things sort of thing, because I don't think Mark McKenzie had a particularly good game, certainly not in possession. He obviously has the mistake for the first goal. He has a few more where he gets caught out. He has a few more where he has to make a clumsy play to try to make up for it here. I understand why it's given. I think it is it is understandable because it does hit the hand because the hand is slightly away from the body, breaking the silhouette. But as I said, with slow-mo, it also like because he's jumping, he's moving in the opposite direction of the ball as it comes in. It just looks that much worse because when it hits him, because he has the momentum, it sends the arm way away from him. So it now looks like he blocked what could have been a power header. And because he's moving out of the way, it almost like spins his body around. So it looks for all the world like he has blocked a power shot, which I don't think was the case. So I don't think he necessarily did anything wrong. It wasn't a jumping and turning his back sort of situation. It was just an unfortunate moment for him, but I think a understandable uh, penalty. But then Ethan Horvath is the hero. The U.S. gets the win and all is right with the world, unless you're a fan of Eltry. Taylor, all these years we've been watching CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers and friendlies and other competitions between CONCACAF teams. And we thought we'd reached peak CONCACAF, but we mm. hadn't. We were, we were wrong. We didn't know we were wrong, but we were wrong because peak CONCACAF now, and this game proves it, includes at least three trips to the VAR booth, <laughs> right? That's the only thing that could have possibly made CONCACAF more CONCACAF-y. It yep. is a little spice of VAR, a little twist of VAR added in. And we got that in this game, and it only made this, it only made it better from a CONCACAF standpoint. This, this game, again, so absurd. The U.S. didn't have their best game, but the fact that it was just as entertaining as it was, it's an all-time U.S. men's national team classic game because of things like this Mark McKenzie handball, because of things like this Ethan Horvath save, this game will go down as one of the most memorable U.S. men's national team games of all time. Clint Dempsey in the camo jacket helps, too. Oh, we haven't yeah. mentioned that, but I do want to mention <laughs> that here. Not even just because, like... It's hilarious, but because that is another component. It's like that that studio crew having fun and talking trash and making fun of him for not scoring against Mexico and then him enlisting all of his international goals. Like, it was just a good time, and there was that sense of camaraderie there that I thought also... Uh, it just it, it made it that much more of a memorable evening. Uh, Joe, before we go, we should talk about other memorable performers that we maybe haven't talked about as much. I wanted to spotlight for a moment Weston McKinney because... I thought, obviously, he gets the equalizing goal, the big header. He has the header off the post that sets up the first goal. But his positioning, I thought, was excellent. He did such a good job of cutting out passing options, blocking passing lanes, but tracking runs all over the place. He he, If he wasn't the player for the United States who covered the most distance, I would be surprised. Uh, and then other moments, like like when there are scrums and he gets involved and calms things down when he comes over and has a or like he escalates things, certainly, but then he's able to calm down the team after that. Uh, when I talked about this on the quick take, when Stefan is debating whether or not he needs to go out or should set I think Weston McKinney kind of gives him the like, hey, man, we appreciate it, but like we got to make a change here. It's a it's a tough moment, but it's a leadership moment. And even just when he scores the goal, you know, I love watching celebrations to see what happens. It is a full on dead sprint straight 
to Greg Berhalter. He jumps into Greg Berhalter's arms. The whole team jumps around them. But in that moment, when you have this like incredibly charismatic player running straight to the manager to celebrate a goal, it speaks volumes about how that team feels about Greg Berhalter, at the very least how Weston McKinney feels about Greg Berhalter. But it does seem like with this team... He has a lot of sway in that locker room, Weston McKinney. So I think him leading on the field, leading in moments of stress and duress, but also scoring goals, being a big performer, I thought it was an immense performance from Weston McKinney. Yeah, I totally agree. He did so many things well in this game. Not not clean in possession, really, but that was a team-wide thing. So I, I'm not going to really take much yeah. away from him there. Zach Steffen, I thought, even though he doesn't play the whole game, mm-hmm. makes that huge save on Chucky Lozano in the 43rd yep. minute after Mexico go over the top. That that could have been 2-0 if, if the VAR disallowed corner kick goal wasn't 2-0. That was a really, really good chance for Mexico that Steffen comes up huge to save. John Brooks as well. We, we talked about him, but He's so solid. He has these limitations. He gets that early yellow card, and I'm thinking, oh, man, he's in trouble. He's going to have to I play can't believe even, he more, even yeah. more yeah, defensive, right, and, and staying back more. But he didn't really. He still stepped with Chucky Lozano as he dropped into midfield. And he got burned some. Sure, he's always going to get burned some. But he brings so much quality on the ball, and he showed that, I think, more than any other player in this game. And he also brings an ability to defend in the box. We don't really talk about that, Taylor. But he can clear balls out. He can be a threat on set pieces in an attacking sense or in a defensive sense. He can clear balls out on the ground. He is just a a real force to be reckoned with defensively. And we saw that in this game inside the United States 18-yard box. We did. And we saw him, another one for me, that, like, because I value weird things— like, he just cares, man. And he cares so much about winning, certainly, but I think wants to win with this team. When Pulisic takes that penalty, there's the shot of him not being able to watch. He's watching on the Jumbotron. When Horvath makes that save, once uh, he's, like, collected the ball off the penalty and, and things are calming, John Brooks is the first one over there. I think it's John Brooks and Reggie Cannon are the first two over there to really celebrate and pick him up. And and it was the same in the Honduras game when I think Sargent makes a play. Brooks came over to get involved in the scrum, but also, like, high five Josh Sargent. And just those moments you can tell he enjoys playing for this team. He likes this team and I think is willing to work for them and I thought had a very strong performance. One other name I wanted to spotlight before we call this one quits would be Gio Reyna because I think we've talked... Enough about other players, and I thought they were, like Calvin Acosta, I thought did well in midfield or well enough in midfield. Some of the deficiencies we already mentioned, I think when he moves to left back, I thought he also did well and did a good job of limiting uh, Linez over there. But Reyna was, once again, an attacking spark for, a spark for the U.S., and not just because he scores the goal and has his family in attendance, but for... Little things like when Timothy Weah comes on and Reyna has that first time the big switch across the field that I don't think anybody saw coming, certainly not Mexico, and it leads to a very good attacking play. I think it ends up with a corner for the United States. But Reyna just seems to try stuff in the right moments. Sometimes he gets it wrong, but I liked when he tried to take people on. I also liked when he went simple and was just sort of calm and uh, technical on the ball. And I thought it, a good performance from him. I understand why he came out. I'm still sad that he took a cup of ice to the face. Uh, but I thought it, a good good enough performance from Gio Reyna tonight or last night. Yeah, and he and Christian Pulisic weren't really set up to succeed with this approach yeah. that the U.S. had. And so the fact that he was able to have impact on Christian Pulisic as well, even even in a game where the U.S. didn't have much of the ball, I think is is great for him. And then one one quick name. I know we've said one more a couple times, but Tyler yeah. Adams coming off the bench in the 82nd yeah. minute. It was just good to see him, <laughs> yes. right? And he oh, makes, I love Tyler Adams so much. 
He makes a, some big tackles in this game. He goes over and helps Kellen Acosta with Diego yep. Linas. And, you know, at some point after coming on late in that second half, I believe it might have been an extra time. I can't find it in my notes right now. But he, he covers oh, ground. Oh, which one? That, he, the, the poke tackle? Yeah, it's he comes around almost like from the middle. He loops around to the yep. left behind the back line. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for it. I'm looking for it. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking. Yeah, there it is. Uh, you know, in the 108th minute, I think he ends there up conceding a foul off of it. But yeah, he comes over and does make that play, does help out on the 1v1. Oh, it, it was right. so yeah. nice to see him sub on. It felt like, oh, okay. Like, so like, like somebody calm, so like a, a, a comfort blanket subbing on <laughs> the Temple Grand and Squeeze Machine subbing on for the United States. That's what Tyler Adams is for me. Just a calming factor who I know is going to patrol, keep the ball, win the ball, uh, do smart things. I love Tyler Adams. And I hope we see him. It, it looks like he's getting back. I think Berhalter said he's, he was he was fully fit before this game, and maybe that's just hmm. press games. I don't know. But I hope we see him on Wednesday against Costa Rica. If he's ready to go, it's the last friendly that the U.S. is going to – it's the last game the U.S. is going to have with this first starting top group. So getting a look at Adams at the six, I would expect the U.S. would go back to the four three three. Maybe we get Yunus Musa a start. Maybe Legette starts over McKenney just to, to give McKenney a rest after playing a lot of minutes recently. But I hope we see Adams if he's ready to go and if Berhalter, you know, thinks he has it in his legs to go. I'd love to see him start at the six against Costa Rica on Wednesday. Well, we will be reviewing that game, one more U.S. game. Then we've got some Euros. Then we've got some Gold Cup. It's going to be a busy summer, Joe, but I'm excited for it. I'm excited for the U.S. to be the inaugural Nations League champions. Anything else from you before we call this one a day? I'm just glad Christian Pulisic can say that he's finally lifted a major trophy. Um, <laughs> that that makes me really happy. Way to go, Christian. The the major trophy, Joe. <laughs> the major trophy. Uh, well, Joe Lowry, thank you for staying up late uh, to watch that game, uh, to rewatch it. I don't know if you did that last night or this morning, but either way, thank you for joining me today to break down the USA's 3-2 win over Mexico. You got it, Taylor. Trace Dos doesn't have quite the same ring as Dos Acero, but I'm cool with it either way. <laughs> Listeners, thank you all very much for listening, and we will talk to you all again very soon. Yeah.